Well, good morning. Again, y'all with me this morning? All right. You know, anytime we step out of the ordinary and uh, take a break from, from what normally goes on, it can be quite interesting with folks being on vacation. We don't have our full uh, worship band up here, and, and uh, it just sometimes it seems out of sync. But you know what's faithfully consistent? Yeah, Jesus and God's Word. And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we study, as we continue our summer psalms. We're going to be looking, are you ready for today? Jake, you got it up there? He's working on it. Okay, he's getting my PowerPoint up there. Um, Jake's, by the way, Jake's rolling today. For one of the first, I think it's his first time up there in the sound booth, so he's doing a good job. He's learning and growing. This is what we like to see, our young people taking over for us old guys. We're not going to be around forever, so we got young people taking over and learning the process, and I appreciate Jake. He's rolling, going to be working on getting up there. Well, if, uh, while Jake's working on getting that, getting that psalm up there, how many of you know what the longest psalm in the, in the uh, psalms are? 119. We're looking at 119 today. Y'all ready? That's why we have lunch, because we'll be back after lunch to finish. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, actually, uh, yeah, woo we're going to look at the longest one. The next week, uh, Rock's going to take Psalm 121 for about five minutes, and we'll be all done. So, actually, 117 is the shortest, I believe it is. But anyway, how many of you know Psalm 119? Any verses from Psalm 119? Anybody know any? I bet you do. How about your word is a, yep, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Yeah, that's Psalm 118, 105. How about another one? Your word have I hidden that I might not what? Say that again. Say that with me. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not what? That I might not sin. How many of you are doing a good job this week with that thing of not sinning? Interesting. So in, in, in the Psalms, as we think about parallelism, and we're not, I'm not going to go into the depth of, of the genre of, of poetry in Psalms. That's a great study in and of itself. I love it. Um, but there's so much depth to Psalms in understanding poetry in the Hebrew language. We're going to look at it in just a few minutes. In fact, that's my, I've entitled my message today, Learning and Living from A to Z. You understand the A to Z in just a few moments, um, at least in light of the Hebrew text. But uh, as I think about your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin. So not sinning is equated to what? God's word, hiding it in my heart. So if we're struggling with sin, my natural question is, how are you doing with what? Scripture memory. How you doing with hiding God's word in your heart? Do you know God's word? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about. Psalm 119. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses this morning. Don't, yeah, you were worried. You were worried. 176 verses. Are you serious? And I know he likes to take big chunks, but this is a little ridiculous. You're right. We're going to look at verses one through eight and uh, specifically. But as we come to Psalm 118, if you want to turn in your Bibles, go ahead and turn in your Bibles, Psalm 118, or open up your tablets or your phones or whatever else mechanical gizmo you got. Um, I just got, in fact, I'm, I'm doing something really crazy today. My wife stepped into the, into the pew beside me and she goes, you know you don't have your Bible with you. And I said, yeah. And she goes, no, your, your regular Bible. I said, yeah, I know, I'm good. 
I'm actually using the NLT today. New Living Translation, okay? I usually use New King James. I've grown up on King James, and I've, I've known it. It's just familiar. It's in my head, so if, I'm, if I quote a verse, you may hear the these and nows and all the weird stuff. But that's because I memorized it that way. But uh, I really like what the NLT, how they translate it today. In fact, I'm going to be, I'm going to be sharing some different uh, translations from the, from the NIV to the NLT and the, the King James or the New King James. Because, again, I think as, as you read the Psalms, if you take it and read in each different text, you're going to find a different perspective uh, on the different words, the various words that are used by the psalmist. So as we begin this venture into Psalm 119, I want you to realize that Psalm 1 and Psalm 19 are, are very similar as to Psalm 119. Because I believe as you read through those, you'll come to find out that these were, I believe, really written with each other in mind. Psalm 119 was also written with Psalm 1 and I believe Psalm 19 in mind. We're not going to look at those in detail. I wish we could. I wish we had time. But if you read them, especially Psalm 1 and Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8, you're going to see a lot of parallels. And, and what, the reason that is the case is that these are called Torah Psalms. Torah Psalms. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But uh, I want to do I want to do two different things today. First, I want to teach a little bit. I want to teach you a little bit, and then I'm going to preach a little bit. Okay. So the learning part is what we're going to touch base first in understanding the psalm. So basically, the first thing I want to ask you, and and we have to think about, and you have questions there or spots in your bulletin you can fill out if you're following along. But who wrote the psalm? Anybody know? Usually we can look at the psalm right at the beginning, and it tells you a psalm of, yeah, who wrote it? Does it say? No, it doesn't say in the text today. I think, Tom, I think you said last week you had your psalm too, didn't have who it was. Could have been David. I think there's some, there's speculation, of course, that it was David, possibly Hezekiah, Jeremiah is also mentioned, Nehemiah, Malachi, and even Daniel. But I think, I, I personally like to land on Ezra. And the reason I like to land on Ezra was he knew the word. He was an amazing scribe and wrote, and, and if you read the book of Ezra, you will hear him numerous times mention about the word, the, the truth, the Torah. And I believe Ezra, and as you read through and study through the psalm, I think you will find that that is quite possible. I don't know. We don't know who wrote it. Uh, when was it written? Again, unknown. But it was believed if it was Ezra, it would have been much later in Israel's history. Uh, much later, toward, actually towards the end of the actual writings of the Old Testament. As you get down towards the uh, return to Jerusalem after captivity in uh, around 586, 400, uh, down through that period of time after they had gone to Babylon, uh, 536. Uh, Nehemiah, again, is a possibility because it would, they believe it was written later in Israel's history. And it really emphasizes the, uh, the inward spiritual aspects of faith as we read through it. In fact, there's, there's no mention of the temple nor of ritual law. So if you look through Psalm 119, you're not going to find what would typically be seen in these other psalms as they were going up to the temple or in the songs, psalms of ascent. This is specifically about the law, the word. And you're going to see that in just a few moments. So what type of psalm is it? Well, I believe it can be described as two different types. One is wisdom, a wisdom psalm. The other one is a Torah psalm. 
You like how it, you got to get the, the you got to kind of swallow a potato, Torah, if you're Hebrew. If you're English, just say Torah. But both of those work. So wisdom psalms say, well, why would it be both? Well, wisdom psalm actually represents and influences of a certain way of conceptualizing life and faith. So as we understand and as the writer of Psalm 119 understood the faith that he had, it was how do I live this out? How does it affect my life? You also see that in Job and also in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, all other books that are written as poetry. But you see this, this wisdom literature found in these books as well. But not only is it wisdom literature, but I think it also could be considered a Torah psalm, as I mentioned in Psalm 1 and Psalm 19. They're viewed in, in ways as ones which the will of God is known and thus the basis for true wisdom and happiness. How do I know how to be happy? We're going to find that out in just a second as we look at Psalm 119. And, and, and we, again, we see it in the, same, the beginning of Psalm 1. But wisdom and, and, and the law is based on the truth. Many times when we say Torah, you hear the word Torah, we think of the word law. But it's more than just a, a, a translation of an understanding of, of this, this book or these rules, these regulations. The, it, it's the design that God had for redemption and for freedom. And if there's anything that you catch today, I want you to realize as we read through Psalm 119 and as you listen carefully to what I share with you this morning, that it's not just about a book. It's not just about a, a, a set of rules and regulations. But it's far more. It's, it's life. It's how we live. It's how it changes you. And that's what I want you to realize today because I think we've lost that perspective in Christianity today. We, we talk about the Bible and we go and we read the Bible and we, we, we study God's word. But then somehow between the time we, we shut the pages and we step into life, all of that's forgotten. And we can't understand why life is falling apart. And, and, and we don't know why things don't work the way that we thought they should and why I struggle with this. And we're going to be talking about that this morning a little bit. But I want you to grasp onto that, that it's far more than just the law. That's what the, the Jewish people thought. That's what the Israelites believed, that I had to do all these things. And God says, no, you'll never keep them. It's impossible. So why was Psalm 119 written? Well, we're going to see about it and understand that in just a few moments, but it's a clear instruction about his word and how to live by it. And again, if we live according to his word, we will find out that God does bless. Now, the interesting thing is you begin to look at this psalm. How is Psalm 119 different? Well, it is quite unique. How many of you have psalms broken up into your Psalm 119 broken up to eight verses each? Okay, most of you, some, some translations do, some translations don't. What's at the beginning of each one of those eight, eight verses? Is there a little word that says like Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth? Okay, the, here's what's unique about Psalm 119. If you're familiar with it, you, you'll recognize this. But Psalm 119 actually uh, uses an acrostic. Each of the 176 verses are broken down into eight specific 
uh, couplets or, or verses, I guess it would be octetlets, I, I guess is what you'd call them, 22 sections of eight verses each. And, and each of those 22 sections in that acrostic, go ahead, uh, Jake, you flip that up there. Now, if you look carefully on the right-hand side there, you can see that first letter. Now, remember, Hebrew reads from right to left, okay? So, it, yeah, it, it didn't translate or didn't come across real well on the, I should have checked on the, the fonts, but anyway, you get the picture. You're not going to read it for me anyway today. So, you can hear the professor in Hebrew going, take a look at the first line and understand the Hebrew. He's like, no, it wasn't that dry, trust me, it was really good. But uh, as you begin to look at the, each one of those first letters on the right-hand side, that's the first letter of the alphabet, the Aleph in Hebrew, Aleph. And so, the first word is actually asher, which means joyful, blessed, uh, again, it's, it's, they use that first letter. And so, each one of these verses starts with the Aleph in one of those words. Talk about thinking and processing to put that together. Now, the Holy Spirit had some fun with that, whoever it was, whether it was Ezra or Nehemiah. So look at the next uh, Psalm, verses 9 through uh, 16. It starts with the B, the Beth. So Aleph, Beth, and if we don't have, I don't have the rest of them run down there, but if you get a Hebrew Bible, you'd follow them through, and the next set of eight verses is going to have the, the G, which is the Gimel, which is the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's going to have them in the first, as the first letter of that word. So the Hebrew is so unique. And again, you don't see it in, in English. You can't see it in English. And so you kind of miss it. And so if you follow along, now you understand a little bit of my thinking when I say learning and living from A to Z. In other words, from Aleph to Tau, I believe is the, running through my head real quick. Yeah. The Tau is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So basically this, as you go through Psalm 119, you're going from A to Z in each of the eight letters as you go through the alphabet. And it's a unique psalm in and of itself. Well, again, just some interesting facts that you find out, and I'm not, I don't have all this written down, but I just jotted some things down. Of the 176 verses, only one Psalm, 120, or psalm verses 122 and 121 are the only ones that don't have a word that in, indicates the word of God. In other words, there's always one descriptive word in each verse that talks about the Torah or the word of God. And I'll talk about that in just a second. If you want to go through and do a study, we don't have time today. I'd love to do this as well as breaking down Psalm 119. If you go down through there, verses 1 through 8, you see God's word blesses us. Jump down to verses uh, 25 to 32, God's word revives us. There is a following, there is a theme that goes with each of these eight verses as you follow through. Uh, verses 88, 81 to 88, the word of God in persecution. Verses 145 to 152, the word of God is to be obeyed. So again, you want to do a deeper study? Take each one of the eight verses, each one of those octetlets and... Uh, and break it down and look and see what the main theme is and see what the psalmist was trying to say. One writer put it this way, each octuplet has a different theme. Some of those themes speak to different stages in our lives. Some of those themes give us instruction about how to soak up the precious word of God. And some of those themes are cries to our God for him to change us so that we will spend more time in his word. And as we look at this first one, I believe, too, we're going to see how God does bless us in these first eight verses. Very quickly, the, again, just some information that will be very helpful as you read through this psalm. There's eight nouns that begin to go through each one of these psalm, uh, in Psalm 19. 
First one is law. You're going to see that word mentioned. And many times these are just synonyms. They're, they're parallels to, to one other word. Law can mean instruction or direction. It's what God has given to us as the instruction manual to life in, the, in these uh, verses. Testimonies, there's 23 of those throughout the, the 176 verses. And these always refer to laws as divine testimonies. Precepts is another word. Can also be used as commandment or statute, which you will see as well. It's a general rule intended to regulate behavior or thought. Statutes, 21 times. Something that is prescribed. When you go to the doctor, you get a statute, in a sense. You get a prescription. So they give you something that uh, he's going to give us statutes. Described or decrees or ordinances, different ways that he describes it for us. It's also the word way or path. It's viewed, again, as synonymous for God's word. And it shows how our life is supposed to be marked out based on God's word. Commandments. Anybody know what a commandment is? Something we're supposed to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. It can be paralleled with precept or law. Judgments, there's 19 times in the 176 verse, viewed as a legal decision, a ruling from the bench. In other words, when it is decided, God says it, that's it, final, judgment, determined, laid out there for us. And then finally, the word for word, also as a synonym for scripture. And again, many of these terms are used interchangeably. They may seem confusing, but just always think of, of the, this word, the word when he gives us precepts or commandments or judgments or statutes or testimonies. He is conveying the truth to us. Another aspect that you're going to see, again, eights always seem to be popular in this psalm. Eight, another eight verbs. You're going to see how he uses the word walk or keep, where he talks about respecting the word. He talks about learning. He also talks about declaring God's word, rejoicing, meditating, and delight. All of these words would be just amazing to sit down and study. I could spend a whole message just on these terms in and of themselves and what it means to walk in the truth or to meditate, to murmur over and over and over and, and kind of mumble. Do you ever mumble to yourself? The older I get, I do it naturally. I mean, I, there, I remember my grandfather at times, he'd just be talking to him. I'm like, what are you talking to? Are you talking to? Nobody, just me. I, I always tell my wife when I'm talking to myself, I said, the best part is I never argue with myself. If I do, then I'm really in trouble. But as we think about this and understand that these verbs and these nouns with regard to God's word and how we're supposed to live, all of these are actions that should be demonstrated in our lives as we think about this text. Now, that's just a little bit of teaching. That's just a little bit of learning. And I know, Doug Hoffert, you were over there soaking it up as a teacher, weren't you? Yeah, I know. I could see you were smiling. Okay, now we're going to switch to preaching. So you'll have to hang in there for this one because I get the rest of the folks. But now I want to I talk to you about the psalm itself. How then do we not only learn about Psalm 119? My question is, you can learn all you want, but until you live it and incorporate it into your life, it's not going to make any difference. Amen? So how do we live the word? Well, take a look at Psalm chapter 119. We're going to start out with uh, verses 1 through 3. And I think this psalm is broken down into three sections, uh, three different aspects that I have pulled out from this psalm that 
The first three are found in, or the first one is found in verses one through three. Be diligent in the word. Be diligent in the word. Joyful are the people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil and they walk only in his paths. Look at verse 1 with me, if you would. Just focus in for a few moments on these verses as we begin to contemplate what the psalmist was trying to, to get across to us. If Ezra was trying to make it known how important the word of God is, look what he starts out with. And I love this. Poetry many times um, starts with a, a concluding thought. Many times the poet would, would, would give you the answer before he would give you the reason why he gave you the answer. So if it gets confusing and it always seems like you're reading backwards, you, in a sense you are. So he starts out by saying, Here, here's one thing, and it's the most important thing. And again, in Hebrew, the first thing that's usually mentioned in the line is usually the most important thing. That's the way they function in Hebrew. They tell you what's important right away, and then they'd explain it. So the, the psalmist here says, joyful are the people of integrity. The New King James, as I mentioned, say, blessed are the undefiled. The NIV, perhaps you have that today, it says, blessed are those whose ways are blameless. Three different words there, joy or joyful, blessed and happy. But realize this, joy, blessedness, and happiness are not necessarily feelings but rather a biblical mindset which actually we have to develop and which evokes gratitude or happiness that comes out of it. And it may not necessarily follow. Do you realize that to be joyful doesn't mean to be woohoo? <laughs> Most of you people uh, that come up to me and you say, are you always this way? Are you always like lively and, and excitable and and full of vigor and energy, and I said, yeah, the older it gets, the slower it gets, but it's still there, but then you ask my wife, and she'll tell you, no, he's not always that way. I can be down. I can get discouraged. I can be depressed. I can be frustrated and have those, ah, recently, I, I've had going through the times where I, I look up at God and go, why, what is going on? And he doesn't answer me. He just says, I got this. And my joy comes rolling back, right? And I go, oh, okay. You know, I'm happy. No, frustration, it's sometimes not there, but the joy is there. I can be frustrated, I can be discouraged, I can be down, but yet the joy is there. And, and here's the thing. This aspect of, of joyful are the people of integrity, I really, again, I think that's where that comes. The joy comes from being a person of integrity, being blameless. Now, how many of us are blameless here this morning? I didn't think so, unless Jesus is sitting in here somewhere, which he is, but I don't see his hand raised. Uh, he's the only one that's going to be blameless. So how can we be blameless? How can we really have any joy at all? Anybody? Yeah, it is through Jesus. And, and that's why I like this aspect of integrity rather than blameless. Because if I think of blameless, I think I'm perfect. And there's some days I think I am. My wife says, let me tell you, you're not. Let me remind you, 35 years will tell you no. 
that's not the case. And I realize that, but I like the aspect of integrity because integrity is, is an aspect or, or a way of looking at things that is speaking the truth. There is no deception. It's not that I'm, that I'm sinless, but that I actually will stand on what is true, what is right, what I feel needs to be said. It was interesting, just recently I did a um, Clifton Strengths Test 2.0. Anybody done any of those, like in business? or They try to determine what your strengths are, 34 different ones, and they give them from one to, one to 34, uh, based on basically, okay, what's your strengths and what's focus on those and utilize those so that you can be a better worker. And uh, even here at church, that's what Josh and Dan and I have gone through that. We're looking at our strengths. Uh, my, my first one was relater. Surprising. Yeah, no, I didn't think so either. Like, somebody want to come in and talk? Like, yeah, let's go out and get something to eat and have, have a party. Woo! I love to relate to people. You know what my second one was? Belief. In other words, not being afraid to state the truth, to stand on what is right, to have a determination clearly of black and white and right and wrong. I didn't used to be that strong, but apparently I am. And really, that's why I love to counsel. That's why I love the word of God. Because it cuts right to the chase. It will tell me when I'm wrong. And it will show me when I'm right. It is being a man of integrity. It is being women of integrity. It's people of integrity that when there's something that needs to be said, that it needs to be said. Spoken in love. Apples of gold and setting of silver is the words that we're supposed to use. But yet it needs to be taken care of. And sometimes that's not always pleasant. Some of you know that. I know that. But yet, when we are people of integrity, then the result is joy. Joyful are the people of integrity, look, who follow, look at the second part of that, the second stanza of that, who follow the instruction of the Lord. So how are we supposed to be people of integrity? By what? What's it say? following the instructions of the Lord. So if you don't, here, here's a simple question. This, this is Logic 101. If you don't follow the instructions of the Lord, what's the natural result? No joy? No, what, what's that, Mike? No integrity. I want you to think about our society today. I want you to think about we used to have, 30, 40 years ago, we used to have what we call morality. There was a standard. There was an acceptance of a standard of what we would call truth. There was an accepted, a, a standard of what we, we would call respect. There was a standard that we called um, honesty. Even in, in people that didn't know Jesus, that were unbelievers, that were still inclined to sin. And even as believers, we still have that tendency we have that desire to want to go ahead and do what I want. But something went awry. Where did we go awry? Truth no longer means what it used to mean. Well, there is no truth. The only truth that you have is, or we have, is whatever you make it to be. There is no respect for authority anymore. See, morality went out the window. And sadly, I think a lot of our churches have struggled because we equated Godliness with morality, rather than standing firmly on the truth of the word of God and understanding it is what makes the difference, not just because I'm a good person, because the Bible says none of us are good. 
But when we think that we're good, then we really don't need Jesus. We've got everything we need right inside of us. You know that's not true. So when you think about this, again, the, the psalmist is trying to make it very clear. Joyful are the people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. When we live our lives as people of integrity, I had one, one a friend of mine that used to call us, tef, we should be Teflon men. Nothing sticks to us. No accusations. That when somebody throws something at us, people go, no, I don't believe that because I know who he is. Because the standard is integrity. The standard is following the instructions of the Lord. Well, the psalmist doesn't stop there. Look at verse 2. He says again, joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with their whole heart. Again, the results for first, joy. How are we to be diligent in the word and receive these blessings? By being joyful. But how? How do we become joyful and blessed? Well, it's by obeying his laws and searching him for him with their whole heart. Do we search for God with all our hearts? Look at verse 10. Jump down to the, the next set, octuplet there, the second verse in that second set. He says, I have tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. Here's the psalmist seeking for God, looking for God, seeking for him wherever he may be found. How many of us seek after God, actively seek after God? Do we? Is that ethereal? Does that sound almost fuzzy to you? Because I think many times we do. Well, I'm looking for God. And I ask people, where are you looking for God? Well, I, I'm praying. Okay, good. That's good. And talking to him. Okay. How, have you read the word? Well, no. Well, that's funny. Because the word of God is the instructions that we have to find God, to know God intimately. But for some reason, we look for every, in every other direction but in the Word of God. And here he says, joyful and blessed are people that seek after him with their whole heart. I think it's Psalm 63. In Psalm 42, I think. There's a, a chorus years ago that was written. I think it's Psalm 42. Did I write that down? Yeah, Psalm 42 and 63. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my what? So my soul longs after you. I've seen a deer running, and when he's been running, he's looking for water. Recently, I was working on my roof, and it was like 95, just before I went to Kansas City. And uh, I'll tell you, I came down off that roof longing for water. I was looking for water at times. My wife, she, I don't drink that much water. I just don't drink, I just don't drink. I don't have the desire to, but I realize I need it. And so I came down off of there, and she's like, did you drink? Yeah, I got it. I got it. I'm getting it. I'm getting it. And I realized I needed it. Do we seek after God with our whole heart in that same way? Do we really want to know him? Do we wonder why we don't have joy? Do we wonder why we're struggling in life? It's because we aren't seeking after God with our whole heart. Look at verse 3. I think the psalmist breaks into a commentary here at this point. I think this type of person, this joyful, obedient to either a man or woman of integrity, does not compromise with evil. They only walk in his path. It's only by walking in his path. And again, I think it's pointing back to verse 1. These people of integrity don't compromise with evil. You know, it's a lot like the, the fire, uh, the coals. Just, Annette and I, were we were doing shish kebab, shish, yeah, I can't even say it. You know what I'm talking about, on the stick, you know, over the fire, that thing. Yeah, um, 
if your bridge slips, it works a lot easier. Fifth kebab. <laughs> Push it back in. Uh, so the coals were getting hot, and I was, and then they weren't, and I thought, oh, okay, and I, I hadn't put the shish kebabs on yet, but I decided just to reach in and move some coals around. <laughs> you know, my dad used to say, buy your books and send you to school, and, and it, but, but compromising with evil is very much the same way. It's not really going to hurt me. I can do it really quick. Times I've grabbed a hot thing off the stove and put it down real fast, and somebody said, is it hot? And I said, no, I just don't like to hold it that long. <laughs> you know, and, and we, in many ways, it's, even that is an excuse to justify that I really wasn't doing anything wrong. You were just being, yeah, you were being stupid. What are you doing and I think the, the psalmist here, he says, people of integrity do not compromise with evil and they walk only in his paths. Again, the things that are in the world are so tempting. Satan knows how to tempt us. He knows our weaknesses. He comes after us at our weakest link. He goes for the chink in the armor so he can get you. And he knows where that is. As strong as you may be, he will come after you. And I think the psalmist understood that. And that's why he said to be diligent in the word. As you think and obey and search after him and walk only in his paths. Then the psalmist goes on in verses 4 through 6. Let's look at those. He talks about the only way to, to be uh, obedient and to seek after him is to be desirous of the word. Even as he, he tags on into uh, out of verse 2. He picks up to, in verse 4 he says this. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my effects or my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Verse 6, then I would not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, he says, you have charged us to keep your commandments. What's that last word there? Carefully. Keep my commandments carefully. Do you ever tell somebody, I mean, there are jobs that you do, and then there are meticulous jobs that you have to do just right. There's something that you want done just right. How do you do it? Carefully. You, you look carefully at it. You watch it carefully. And I think this is what the psalmist is trying to say. He says, keep my commandments Carefully. God says, keep my commandments carefully. The problem is, I think I can handle it on my own. I think I can do it. And then you've heard that thing, um, kiss. God doesn't make it really difficult for us, does he? It, it, this is, many times is my mantra. Let's keep it simple, stupid. Let's keep it simple, stupid. God realized how simple-minded I am, and, and, and he makes it simple. If you look at the text, you have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. But how, again, I ask you, how can I keep the commandments if I don't know them? Well, you can't. You know that as well as I do. 
So the fact is God wants us to keep uh, his commandments, but the, the frustration comes in verse 5. Look at verse 5, and I can hear the psalmist because I can relate to him, because I can feel the, the pain as the psalmist cries out, Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Turn back with me to, to Romans chapter 7. Yeah, you know, some of you know where I'm going already, don't you? Yeah. Paul echoed this same thought in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to, to 25. Romans chapter 7. Listen to Paul as he echoed the psalmist. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself. For what I want to do, to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing it. It is sin living in me that does it. But it's still him. He knows that. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't do what, I, what is wrong. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Can you hear Paul? Can you hear him? Next time you read it, don't just read it. Well, I try to do, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. No, you can hear him. Like, I can't do this. This is frustrating. He says, but if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing it. It's sin. I'll jump down to it. Let's see. I've discovered this principle of life. Verse 21. I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. The power makes, this power makes me a slave to the sin that is it's still within me. Oh, what a miserable person that I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Aren't you glad he didn't stop at 24? He doesn't stop there because if he left us hanging there, then we might as well go home and just call it a life. But he says, thank God. He knows the answer. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God, but my, because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. He says, then, don't, and one of the things, don't stay in chapter 7. I think a lot of us continue to live in chapter 7. Keep going. So now, in verse 1 of chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Amen? See, the psalmist was feeling the same thing, the frustration, the cry out, oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decree. Verse 6, then he says, for the future... He says, then, he says, I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. See, he doesn't remain in this state of frustration, which I think he really has displayed. The psalmist is frustrated, but he doesn't want to stay there. No, what he wants to do is to base his life on the hope and on the fact that when he does live according to God's word, that he won't be ashamed of the outcome. And I think up to this point, he, he recognizes when he lays his life next to God's life or God's word, it's, out of, it's, it's not in, in line. It's out of skew. And so, how are we doing? How do we ask ourselves? Realize this. 
Maybe you've failed many times. Failure doesn't have to be who you are. It doesn't have to define you. Erwin Lutzer back, oh, I don't even know how long ago it's been. It's been years ago now. 1975, actually. Some of you weren't even born then. 1975, Erwin Lutzer wrote Failure, the Back Door to Success. One of the best little books I read on understanding failure is it doesn't have to define you, but it shapes us. It shapes us. It helps us to realize that God is always the one who can bring us through these things, as Paul realized, as the frustrations that come in realizing that when I line my, my life up to you, God, up to your word, that's the only standard that there is. That's where I will find hope. That's where I will find joy and blessedness. So up to this point, we realize that the psalmist has taught, about, taught us to be diligent. He's taught us to be desirous. And now finally, he's taught us to be dedicated to, verses, uh, dedicated to the word in verses 7 to 8. Look at, with me at verses 7 and 8. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. The psalmist here gains a perspective even in the midst of reality and many times the difficulties that come about and now he states his goals as he, as he has in verse 7. I will live as I should. He actually uses in this, this translation, he uses this term regulations. The New King James uses the terms judgment. And again, it's a, it's a legal term in which this, this uh, understanding is set. These regulations are the standard as in a precedent from similar for similar cases that has been set. God has given us his word. This is not just a suggestion. God has made it very clear that his word is the only thing we are to keep. It's the only thing that's going to give us hope. It's the only thing that's going to give us life. It's the only thing that's going to bring us joy. It's the only thing that's going to guide us in, every li in life and everything that we do. So I asked you again, as I had at the beginning, why do we struggle so much? Because we're not following God's word. And I'm right there with you. There are days that I don't respond in a godly way. And I look at myself and go, what were you thinking? Because I know the truth. Yet I respond in an ungodly way. I snap back at my wife sometimes. I don't always have a desire to want to do something or to... I want to please people because I don't like the problems, but deep down inside I know what God's word says. And that belief issue thing for me, the conflict that comes, and I know I have to stand true on God's word, and when I don't, it just nails me to the wall. And so I have to be dedicated to his word. Realize this, situations are going to change, but God's word is the standard by which we live by we don't need anything else. It's, it is possible that the psalmist was in exile. That's always possible. It could have been a time, a period, where he realized the only thing that was, this, that was set that he knew he could rely on was the word of God. Think about this. Uh, is there a, I think I put up a quote, Jake. Flip that up there for me. Sometimes God doesn't change your situation because he is trying to change your heart. Did you ever think about that? I love Facebook. There are a lot of goofy stuff on Facebook, but people, once in a while, they'll put a post that really hits at the heart of it. 
that really comes down to, you know, sometimes God's not going to change your situation. You know, we beg and we plead for God to change the situation, to take the problem away. The older I get, the more I realize that sometimes that's the very avenue that he's making me into the image of his son. He's honing me into the, the, the likeness of Jesus Christ because he's taking me through the problems. So rather than taking me out of the problems and I become a cream puff, he takes me through them and I become hardened steel because iron does sharpen iron, as Proverbs says. And I appreciate somebody that says, hey, I love you, but um, man, something's wrong here. That needs to change. That's why I love, if you, if you get close to me, uh, you're gonna hear that from me because I love you. It's like, you doing okay? So I'm concerned. Here's what I see. And people, I don't like people pointing out my faults, trust me. Just ask my wife. She's very, very helpful in that way and guides me in righteousness, and I appreciate that in her. And usually it's, it's not what she thinks. She always says, she shares with me a verse. You know how hard it is to argue with a verse? <laughs> I'd rather her tell me what she thinks, and I'll go, I don't care what you think. But instead, she gives me a verse. So God steps in and goes, you got anything to say about that? And I'm like, no. <laughs> I, can see, I can see why David went out to fight Goliath. He knew who was behind him. There was no way he was going to lose. That's the truth that does the work. Well, look at verse 8. Let's wrap it up here. He says, I will obey your decrees. That's follow 7 and 8 again. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Again, he gives an I will. First, I will live as I should. Second, I will obey your decrees. I'm going to do what you've told me to do. I'm going to dedicate myself to, and commit myself to studying God's word and to living God's word regardless of how I feel. Because you know what, folks? And you've heard me say this before, and I'm a counselor, and it's just, it's in my blood. Feelings don't dictate how we're supposed to live. I know we get, feelings are, are real. At the same time, God is realer. Can I use that word? Well, I'm going to anyway. My feelings tell me that I can't do it. Or that life just stinks right now and I can't handle it anymore. And God says, that's not what my word says. And I can walk you through the difficult times. I can carry you through when you can't stand up on your own. It's in your weakness that I am made strong. I preached on this, the paradox of power, back at the beginning of the year. And some of you probably don't remember it. In fact, I'm guessing most of you don't remember it. I would encourage you to go back, listen to those again, based on 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. We can't do it, but yet we can do it because of him. But I can't do it on my own. But we can do it because of him. But I love how the psalmist ends here. Another cry out to God. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like you were at the end of your rope? 
you just felt like, God, I've tried and tried and tried. I'm, I'm Paul in Romans 7. I don't want to do what I do, and I do what I don't want to do. I'm so tired of living this life. I'm so tired of struggling. I'm so tired of fighting with inside of me. The problem is, is we have a wrong theology. Because you realize that the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives within you. Sin no longer has dominion over you. There is no more power that sin has over you. It is all a facade that Satan is using to control you. You realize that? It's been nailed to the cross. The power is no longer there. Oh, it's still there, but it has no control over me. Sure, his presence and his influence are very strong. He tries to continually tempt me, but yet the power has no power over me. And I can choose to say no to sin. But what do I do? I succumb. I succumb to his, his temptations. Again, seriously, God, please don't give up on me. Can you hear the psalmist? Can you hear the heart? Can you hear it? Joyful are the people of integrity. People of integrity. I think why we feel like God is going to give up on us is because we haven't been a people of integrity. We need to be people of integrity. When we screw up, own up to it. I, I'll be honest with you, I don't like to own up to things. But over the years, you know what? It's gotten a lot easier because I know I am, like Paul said sometimes, I'm the biggest screw-up there is. I guarantee you. And you may not see it, but it happens in here. And I have to continually say, God, my heart's not right. Please don't give up on me. Keep going. Give me hope. And he always does. It's always there. I want to close with this thought. John Phillips in his commentary wrote about, these, about this psalm. He said, as we've learned today, this entire psalm is a mosaic arranged around the central theme of God's law. Throughout, the psalmist did not see God's law as a harsh edict, but a source of joy and rejoicing. We do not have here any cold legalism of Mosaic precept, but the warmth of one in love with the Lord. You see, the word is the foundation on which this poet builds. He builds on it because he loves it. He is bound to the word of God, not by the chains of law, but by the magnetic attraction of love. Folks, we can read all about the truth of the law and the word of God, and I need to obey it. But until it becomes real to you, until it becomes the work of the Holy Spirit in you, until God himself has made it a part of your life, and you have made it a part of your life, and God has empowered you, it will be just words on a page. Let's be a church that really embodies the word of God, that as a people of integrity, that are joyful because the word has changed us from the inside out and that we can show others something's different about you. What is it that makes you smile even in the midst of difficulties? That's the power of the word of God in Psalm 119. 
as the worship team's coming, guys, you go ahead and come on up. I'm going to read Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8 in the Message Bible. Again, I think it's, uh, it's always fun to just look at a little different twist. Hear what the psalmist says from the message. You're blessed when you stay on course, walking steadily on the road revealed by God. You're blessed when you follow his directions, doing your best to find him. That's right, you don't go off on your own. You walk straight along the road he set. You, God, prescribe the right way to live. Now you expect us to live it. Oh, that my steps might be steady, keeping to the course you set. Then I'd never have any regrets in comparing my life with your counsel. I thank you for speaking straight from your heart. I learned the pattern of your righteous ways. I'm going to do what you tell me to do. Don't ever walk off and leave me. Don't ever walk off and leave me. You know what? Even though the psalmist may have felt like God was going to do that, that won't happen. And even when you feel like you failed miserably, God is right there waiting to pick you up, ready to brush you off and send you on victoriously. That's the hope we have. That's the hope I hope you have this year and this summer as we've been going through the summer psalms, the encouragement that we get. God's word is the force that will empower you and guide you in righteousness. Use it today to have that life of joy. Let's pray.